um, our, our library, so to speak, of biblical principles. We now know that the book of Proverbs is a book uh, uh, of principles. It deals with the issues of life, the things that you and I face. You know, I'd say, and I, I have said this, that I, I personally believe that every issue that we will find uh, in life will, uh, if you sit down with your Bible, will find its way back to the book of Proverbs. I believe that every example in the Bible of people doing right and people doing wrong, you know, the things that the Bible says were for our admonition and in samples and examples. I think of all of those things, you can trace those back to the principles found in the book of Proverbs. From Adam and Eve up to the Apostle Paul, right to you and me today when we do the things that we do. I think probably, and I've said this again before, Proverbs is the most unique book in all of the Bible. Its sole mission the only reason it exists is to give you and me the cause and the effect of everything in life based on what we do. It'll show you the cause, why we do it, and it'll show you the effect after you do do it, whether it's good or it's bad, what comes along with it. And it will take, uh, it will take us and really show us everything, how God's opinion is or what He wants us to do. Now today, I want to look again at our next set of verses, and I want to look once more out some great principles that will establish us uh, and give us good counsel and good advice. You'll remember, if it wasn't last week, it was the week before last, I I gave you four things that uh, the book of Proverbs will do for you. I talked about how the book of Proverbs will give you purpose in life. It's the number one problem that most of God's people have. They're saved, they're on their way to heaven, have no purpose in life. Proverbs will give you that purpose. The second thing it'll do is it'll establish you. It'll establish you, first of all, in the Word of God, when it establishes you in the Word of God, it will establish you in your life. When it establishes you in your life, it will establish you in your church. And you'll be worth something here, something that we need. Uh, the third thing I talked about was the importance of getting God's counsel. Or excuse me, good counsel. Good, strong counsel out of the Word of God. And then uh, we talked about the fourth thing was getting good, solid advice. And then, and then taking it, doing something with it. Now, today I want to read Proverbs chapter 20, verse 23, 24, 25, and 26, and then we're going to make some comments on it as we come down through it. Here's what it said. Divers' weights are an abomination unto the Lord, and a false balance is not good. Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy, and after vows to make inquiry. A wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. I'd like to ask today, Mr. William Sanders, you're a pastor. Would you pray for this pastor? Stand up and ask God's blessing on the sermon this morning for me, sir. Amen. Thank you, my friend. Verse 23 says, Divers' weights are an abomination unto the Lord, and a false balance is not good. 
You'll remember coming back from chapter 10, uh, or chapter 20, verse 10, we also saw some similar verses. We've looked at it uh, before. It says, divers' weights and divers' measures are an abomination. Remember back in chapter 11, it said, that's a great verse in verse 1, it says, a false balance is an abomination uh, to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And we saw that one and how that all worked in there. And we have talked about it before. Uh, we really have, the balance of the Christian life. It's simply a balance between the world that we live in versus the spiritual world that we work in and we walk in. That's really what a balance is. I'll say it again. It's a balance between the world that we live in, with the world all around us, versus the spiritual world that we walk in and we do the work of God in. And you know, there lies the challenge for us. Uh, You know, I want you to note the word abomination. We think of the word abominable, abomination. And of course, that's a combination of a couple of words in the Old Testament. Abomination is abominable nations. Uh, The abominable things that the other nations that were doing that Israel was supposed to stay away from. And it always got them out of balance. That's why you find the word abominable or abomination coming up so many times because Israel was called out to be a holy people separate from the world. They cut their hair different. They circumcised themselves. They, they had different dietary laws, all to make them separate. And the word abomination comes in because they always got out of balance with God when they, as God's holy people, allowed the abominable things of the other nations to come into their life. And for you and me, it's simply allowing the world into our life, allowing the things of the world to come into our Christian life and and upsetting the balance that God has in our life. The balance for a Christian will be the hardest thing to keep and to stay focused on. I talked about it last week a little bit. It will require self-discipline that most of God's people do not have today. And, and let me say this. We, we all get balance, out of balance at time to time, every one of us. I'm not sitting up here preaching to you about being out of balance and going to let you believe that I don't get out of balance sometimes. We all do. And when we do... I'm going to tell you, when we do, and everybody does, so don't beat yourself up and go out of here thinking, well, I'm a terrible person because I got out of balance. No, you're a terrible person when you're in balance. It's okay. (laughs) When we get out of balance, just listen to me now. When we get out of balance, it's the biblical principles. It's this church. It's the preaching of the Word of God that doesn't allow you to stay out of balance. That's the way God designed it, by design. You know, a washing machine, I think, is one of the greatest inventions that ever came along. Most of you older folks probably remember this as I do, that, you know, you walk into somebody's kitchen now in a modern-day convenience of a washer and dryer. We didn't have that growing up. I remember how happy my mom was when she got a, a, a new washing machine uh, that that had two tubs with a hand wringer. And, uh, you, you, you know, you, you just, you did it, a lot of the work. I don't remember what we did before that. I guess it was a bucket with a washboard. I don't know. But I remember how happy my mom was. And then I remember that they came out with what they have today. You know, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And I, and I, I you know, I, I, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, The invisible things of him are clearly seen by the things that God made. I've always looked at a washing machine like a good church. Some of you come in here this morning, and you know, you wear your jeans out and you play hard all week and you get dirt from the world on them, you know, grass stains and all those things. 
And so you take it into your mom or you take it or you take it in yourself, you throw it in the water, you want to get it clean. Some of you have come in here this morning with stains from the world. And you know, when you put them into the washing machine, you know, it, it, you fill it up with water. Water is a type of the Word of God. You put in some soap. But you know as well as I do that if you just fill up your washing machine, put the clothes in, put the water in, and put the soap in, your clothes don't get clean. What makes your clothes clean is you have to have an agitator. You have to have somebody that beats your clothes back and forth. Now, for those people who don't like good, hard preaching, then just put your clothes in your washing machine and just let them sit there and see how clean they get. And just come to church on Sunday morning and have some mealy-mouthed guy just teach you and tell you how nice you are. You don't need that. Some of you got some deep-seated stains, and you need an agitator to get you clean. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. And you know what? Sometimes you have to, you have to wash, you get out of the, you get out of the, the stain still didn't come out. So then you got to get, you got to get into it. Then you get that bottle and you got to shout it out. I think a washing machine is a great thing, but I want to tell you something. I, I lived by myself after my father died and my, my, my mom remarried. I lived there by myself in, in the house that I grew up in because uh, my mom moved in with her new husband, and I was pretty much all new to me. I didn't know a lot about everything, and I remember one time I paid, I paid $50 because um, I thought my dryer was broke. And I, I did everything in the world. I put it in, pushed the buttons, and, and I, I paid a guy $50 to come out, the guy to show me you've got to close the lid before you push the button, and then it starts. I learned a lot of lessons in life the hard way, but the washing machine was my, my funnest experience and my scariest experience because nobody told me that it, you had to keep the clothes in balance. And I put the clothes in, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I put in too much, obviously. Guys always do that. Let me tell you something. You, you people who are going to have children and everything, uh, 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 you know, uh, and, you, and you have little kids, women, let, don't let your husband, it's okay for them to learn, but don't let them change the diapers because they, they, when they get a diaper bag and it says 25 pounds, they think that's how much it holds. <laughs> that's not true. I put the clothes in there, you know, and put the soap in and put the thing, the water started filling up, closed that thing. I went upstairs and about 20 minutes later, man, I hear this, Sound, it's unbelievable. And I go downstairs, and the washing machine was going, it was, da- it was doing that, that the boom, 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 boom. It, it was bouncing all over the place. It was out of balance. Now, you know, we get out of balance sometimes. When I did astronomy, I had a, I had a, a, a huge telescope. In fact, I still have it. It was a 12-inch Mead LX200. It was a premier scope. And you could see everything with it. But when they built it, when they designed it, uh, it's got a short tube on it, and you have to put a, a, a dew cap on it or another tube about that long that keeps the dew from forming on the lens because the lens is right there. And, and what they did was whoever designed it, and it was electronic. You had motors you could just dial in, and it would go to wherever you wanted it to go, up and down, left and right. You could had like 90,000 objects you could line it up and just tell, go here, and it would slew, and there would be an eyepiece. It was incredible. But when they designed it, 
they didn't think about the fact that it was going to have that extra weight on the end. And so what, it was a design flaw, which they later fixed, but in the process of that, I don't know how many sets of motors I burned up because the tilt was out of balance with that heavy tube on the front, and it kept burning out the motors. And it's the same thing with you and I. When we get out of balance, you know what's going to happen? You're going to burn out your motors. You simply, you can't be out of balance and not have it affect you. The key is balance. You're balanced. You know, they, they set up, you know, set up drug and uh, uh, DWI entrapments, you know. And you always see on cops and all those things when they pull somebody over. And a guy is as drunk as a skunk. There's no question about it. And they come to the point where they want to, you know, they, they got him on camera and they make him walk, you know, make him walk that straight line. And he can't, it's the funniest thing in the world. He can't walk a straight line. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the place. And, and you know what? He, why? Because he's out of balance. And I'll tell you something else. I've never seen a drunk in one of those that didn't think he was walking a straight line when he wasn't. And when the policeman told him he was drunk, he argued with him that he wasn't. And to him, he's walking a straight line, but to everybody else, it's obviously you're not. And you know what? God's people are the same way. You will argue you're walking a straight line when you don't. And you think you are, but everybody else sees you're not. Balance. Balance. Balance is an incredible thing. Now, he says in verse 24, look at our next verse. Man's going are of the Lord. How can a man understand his own way? Boy, that's a great principle. That's a great verse. And that's a great question. How do we understand the way we're going? You know, the last couple of weeks, you know, God, we talked about God has a purpose for you and a plan for your life. He saved you for that purpose. In our discipleship, we have lesson six, I think it is, where it it contrasts God's will from God's plan. Everybody thinks they're the same. And that's one of the most troubling things in a lot of Christians' lives because they think God's will and God's plan is the same. They're not the same. They're connected. You know, God's will for everybody in this room is the same. God's will for you is that you're like more like Jesus Christ today than you were yesterday. Universally across this church of Christianity, that's God's will for your life. God's plan for your life is the purpose that God has that He wants you to do. You'll never do what God wants you to do, the plan of God. You'll never fulfill the plan of God till you first fulfill the will of God in your life. You have to be something with God before you can do something with God. And you know, that's the problem we all have today. We all try to do things for God before we are something with God. And it'll never work. It'll never work. It'll never get into balance that way. You know, in the Bible, life is like a journey. The Bible talks about it. A journey from point A, that's where you'd get saved, to, uh, to point B or point Z, however you want to take it. And that would be your spiritual maturity or where you really get where God wants you to be. And you know, in between point A and point Z, we travel the road, the path of life, a pathway. I, I didn't plan it this way. I, I didn't, wasn't not that smart. But, you know, our church name is based on Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, uh, where it says, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old path, where is the good way, and walk therein, and, and ye shall find rest for your soul. But they said, We will not walk therein. See, he says in Jeremiah 6.16 that there's an old path that you want to get on. That's the path of balance. But he says in verse 16, stand there uh, in the ways and see. 
you're supposed to stand there and because you have understanding and wisdom, see that there's a road that you don't want to go on a journey on and there's a road that you do. I mean, let me illustrate it even better for you. Imagine your life is like a trip to St. Louis. Kansas City will be point A, that's the day you got saved, and St. Louis will be point B, that's the place where you're going to have your spiritual maturity. And between point A and point Z, you have about 240 miles between the two. Now, in that 240 miles, uh, there, uh, that, that represents the journey of God. It should take you, getting on here in Independence and driving to St. Louis, that'll take you three and a half hours, maybe four hours at the max. But you know what? If the possibility exists that it could take you over a year to get there if you keep getting off all the side exits. I mean, you stop and think about it. You get on here at Nolan Road or whatever, and you start driving towards St. Louis, the first thing you're going to hit is Blue Springs. You have an option to get off there. Then you're going to have Sweet Springs coming up. Then you're going to have Oak Grove. Then you're going to have Odessa. Then you're going to have Columbia. Then you're going to have Concordia. Then you're going to have St. Charles. There's all kinds of places to get off the main road, which represents your life with God, and get sidetracked. And, and, you know, and literally hundreds of places to get off and get sidetracked from getting to St. Louis to the easiest possible route. You know, I talked a couple of weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 1, this was Israel's problem. Bible says that they, it was an 11-day journey from Sinai to where God wanted them to cross over. It took them 40 years. You know why? Too many side trips. You know what will keep you from ever getting where God wants you to be? Too many side trips. I mean, it's just that simple. And God's people take them all the time. All the time. Uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, all, the, all, the, all the places to get off the main highway to lose your way and get sidetracked from the purpose that God has for you. Now, and to make it even worse or harder... You're making this trip at night. The Bible talks about the church age being like a nighttime. Remember over there in Mark chapter 13, verses 32, 37, the four watchers of the church age at night? You have the evening, the morning, the cock crowing in the morning. So you're making this journey at night. You really can't see off the road what's in those towns. You just get enticed by the signs. You're driving down there and it's pitch black and you don't know what's over there. You see some lights, but there's that big billboard. And it entices you that there's something better over on that side street on that exit than there is just staying on the main road. Now, I want to tell you, I know that that main road can get boring sometimes, but boy, the end result of when you get there is pretty good. You know what billboards are there for, don't you? It's for you to get off that exit. They even tell you, Stuckies. Big dude bar and grill. Exit 27. Turn left. Well, I'm not surprised there's not even somebody standing there at the exit to drive you over there. See, you really can't see what's over there. You just get enticed by the exit signs and the billboards of what is probably there. A fun time on the side trip. And spiritually speaking, when you and I take that exit, spiritually, most people will never get back on the main road. They'll never get back to I-70. They'll never get back to the, to the principles of the Word of God. They'll never get to, to the end result. 
Now, if that wasn't bad enough, once you get off the main road and you get into all those, at those cities, then you have a hundred side roads going out of the city that take you even farther away. More bad places. Now, now here's how it works. When a man has absolutely no understanding of the way God, uh, what, what, the way God has for him, he doesn't know where he's going. He has no insight whatsoever. He's saved, but he never got established. He never got good counsel, or he just rejected it. He, he, he makes terrible choices because he, you know, he doesn't have good, solid advice. He got no counsel. Uh, life is all about him. Life is all about her. Now, you know, I got thinking about this. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, he had the prodigal son. Remember him? Now, here's a guy who was on the right pathway with his father and doing good. And the Bible says that he got this. He got, he got looking at the exit signs of what was in the city. So the Bible says that he requested his inheritance and then he went into the city and he, 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 he wasted his substance and his life on riotous living. And then he took an exit outside the city, wound up in the country someplace with the pigs. Once you get off that main road, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. There's too many places to go that's going to mess you up. But, oh, those signs look good. Sushi, bar and grill. Now, here's the question. How can a man then understand his own way? He he can't unless he has the light and the principles and the counsel and advice from the Word of God. He has to get established in his purpose. And I say it again. We... Uh, we all we all get off the main road. Please. I, we all do. We all do. And I have the greatest admiration for people who get off the thing and can get back. That tells me that the stability inside you is greater than the temptation out there. We all get off. The, the problem is the ones that get off and they never come back. You see, the Word of God will give him this the key insights of life on planet earth. He'll give them understanding. He'll start to see it all from God's point of view, God's purpose. And yet, let me say this. It's absolutely no good to have the principles. If I were to ask you today, you'd all hold up stacks of three and five, three by five cards with your promise and your principles. If I was to ask you today, uh, go home to your home, you'd probably have all kinds of them on your refrigerator. If I was to look into your Bible, you'd probably show me you got principle after principle after principle, marked in red, cataloged, and all those things. And I appreciate that, and that's really good. But I want you to understand something. It's absolutely no good to have the principles on three-by-five cards on your refrigerator or notes in your Bible that when you need them, you don't use them. What good is it that you have them that in your hour of need, you just throw them away? That's my point. They're there for a reason. They're there for a purpose. I mean, what is the good if you have a hundred, somebody says, I got a hundred smoke detectors in my house. I'll never have a fire. What good is a hundred smoke detectors if they're not plugged in? What good is all the principles that we have if we're not plugged in? It comes down to the idea and the ideals of a disciplined Christian life based on not how many principles have I cataloged, but do you use the ones that you have? 
a lot of people get into financial problems, and, and, I, and I understand that. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, well, if I could just make more money, if I won the lottery. You know, in most cases, more money won't solve your problem. You know why that is? Because the real issue is not you getting more money. The real issue is you're not doing what's right with the money you have. There's no discipline. There's no structure. And that's, that's the problem. We so misdiagnose what's wrong with us sometimes. And you know why? Because we're not using the principles. The principles will never make, allow you to make a misdiagnosis in your life. It never will. You know why people get mad and leave Bible-believing churches that preach the Word of God? They don't like the diagnosis. They don't like the truth. They don't like it. They're, they're more comfortable going someplace where there's no real truth preached, that there's no hardline uh, agitator, so to speak, that they can, they can feel good about everything. And, and uh, I had a person ask me one time years ago, they said, how could a person leave your church with all the Bible teaching that they get and all the Bibles that here? And I understand that. Because you and I think that way, because many of you, most of you, if not all of you, you really are here because you want to learn the Bible. But the bottom line is this. When you don't love the Bible, when you don't want to learn the Bible, when the Bible is the most important thing to you, you'll be satisfied in a church like that. You wouldn't. They'd throw you out the first week. Every time the guy would say something wrong, you'd, you'd be standing up. Gene, you wouldn't last 15 minutes there. <laughs> and truthfully, that's why you're probably here. I mean, you, 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 Gene won't put up with nothing. He'll ask you. Well, I don't think that, I don't see that. And he has a nice way of doing it. He just says, you're really stupid. I don't get this. You know, I mean, <laughs> I love that about him. I appreciate it. But you know what? Most of you wouldn't make it like that. You know why? Because you've had a taste of it. And I'm not saying you all do right. I don't always do right. But you've had a taste of the truth. And good, bad, or indifferent, you love the truth. You want the truth. And even though you're a wasted person... You won't stand for not getting the truth. I mean, I could be that kind of preacher if you want next week. Well, I, next week, I'm going to give you a sermon like that, okay? I'll just come in, walk up here, let us pray. Now, I want to talk to you today about how wonderful you all are. I look across this crowd, and I just see wonderful people. I just see the fact that you're all you're all God's children. And you, God loves all of you. And who am I to judge you? Who am I to stand up here and say that there's anything wrong in your life? Who am I to stay up here and just say, you know what? I want to look today uh, in uh, a great book of the Bible that I, uh, I found. It's, it's, it's Mealy Mouth Chapter 6. <laughs> you wouldn't put up with that for a second. I love you, and you're all good people, and I love you all. Well, I ain't going to cut you any slack when I come up here. You know what? It's my job. I'm an agitator. That's what I do. And sometimes when your stains really are tough, I'll shout it out. That's what we do. doesn't mean I don't like you. It just means that, you know what? I love you. You know, do you know why you tell people the truth? Do you know why you tell people the truth? Do you know why do you tell people the truth? Because you love them. That's why you tell people the truth. That's why I tell you the truth. It comes down to a disciplined Christian life 
based on the principles. Like I said, I've had, I've had people that had a hundred of principles all my life, and, they, and yet they, they, haven't, they haven't made it to St. Louis. They're nowhere near St. Louis. And you know what? I know, I know, I know, I know. We do a lot of good things here. You do a lot of good things here. We have accountability groups. We have people who put people around you and, uh, and help you. And people struggle. I get it. When people come in, and it isn't always new people. Sometimes it's people that have been around for a while, and they have struggles in their life. And, hey, there, there's safety in putting a, a group of people around you. I get it. We have a new girl or a new guy come in, and they've got some issues and, and struggle with some things. You know, it's, it's, it, it's the way to do it, especially with you guys, because you guys don't miss a trick. And you're there for them, you, you, you disciple them, you work with them, you do more than disciple, you listen to them, you help them, you give them good advice, you do for them what they can't do for themselves. But I've got to tell you something. Accountability groups and support groups are really good and they're an invaluable tool of any church, but they're only temporary. At some point in your life, you've got to establish yourself on the principles yourself. You cannot, have, you cannot live on your, your support group spirituality. You have to develop your own. You have to come to the place that you're going to be like the people. My goal for you is when I put you in a support group or somebody that holds you accountable because you've got issues, my, group, my, my plan for you is to get past your issues, get past what you're going through, and a year from now, you be in a group helping somebody else. That's my goal, see? That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's a temporary fix till you establish yourself in good, solid, biblical principles that you can stand on. But they won't do it. I've had people say, well, I don't have any friends. Well, of course you don't. You don't come to anything. Well, I just don't, you know, I don't feel like I belong. Well, you, that's, that's your deal, not mine. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. If you come to this church and you feel like you don't belong, there's something seriously wrong with you. Well, we bring dogs in on Bible study. They belong. I mean, so many times we want to blame our problems on everything else and everybody else instead of just getting honest with ourselves, getting into the principles, fixing about us what needs to be fixed, and then moving on. Is that so hard? And it comes down to you and me. You know, and, and you think, we think that when I say discipline Christian life, we think that that means discipline to come to church every Sunday. And obviously that's part of it. I'm talking about discipline in, in your thinking process. Quit thinking the things that you think that lead you off the exits to get you off the road. You know, erase the billboards in your journey. Just know right out of the chute, any billboard out there that gets you off the main drag is not a good billboard. I don't care what it is. Look at verse 25. It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy and after vows to make inquiries. When he's talking there, he's talking inquiries to God. You make a vow, you take something in that's holy, uh, you make a vow to God, and then you, you inquire to God based on that vow. You ask something uh, uh, based on the vow. Now, let me just say this to you here so we can get this out of the way. I want to get this in your Bible. Doctrinally, this is the tribulation period. Doctrinally, 
Remember last week we talked about flattery and I took you back and showed you how doctrinally the Antichrist, well this is, this is doctrinally the, uh, the Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots found in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 with the doctrine of Baal. It says, Notwithstanding I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel that called herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, here it comes, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. That's what it's talking about. He says in 2.14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, here it comes, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now that's what it is. In the, in the tribulation period, it's the Babylon mystery religion under the guise of the Roman Catholic Church, under the Antichrist, uh, which even happens today, uh, claiming that nothing more holy on this planet than the body of Christ, and yet somebody's being told you have to devour it and you have to eat it. And then you take the vow that goes along with it. Now for us inspirationally, just let me say this. Devour that which is holy. You take the Word of God. I've given to you before, the Word of God is like in the seven things that you eat. The problem with so many of God's people is you're, you're, you're underweight spiritually. You're eating junk food. You don't have a well-balanced spiritual diet. That Bible says that the Word of God is likened to milk. That's basic Bible. It says it's likened to meat. That's doctrine in the Bible. It's likened to apples. It's likened to bread. It's likened to water. It's likened to vegetables. It's likened to honey. Seven things that if you put those things as your diet and your diet spiritually, you're going to be okay. And so when he talks about devouring that which is holy... When you take the Word of God in, you're taking it in. You're devouring it. And the whole concept here is the stupidity of men making vows to God. Listen, there have been many a GI in World War I and World War II and Korea and even Vietnam that was in a bad situation someplace with 155s coming in and the enemy coming over the wall and scared to the death in Bastogne and the woods there and down through Normandy on the beachhead as they come off those landing crafts that got pinned down and their buddies were dying. There was many a GI that promised God everything in the world. I'll quit drinking, I'll quit smoking, I'll quit fornicating if you just get me out of this mess and let me live. And they got back home and went right back to those things just like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 said, dog returning to his vomit. Don't kid me. And there have been many a Christian that gets into a jam. Hey, I've seen it for almost 50 years. Many a Christian that gets into a jam and tells God, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll do anything if you just get me out of this. I know I haven't done right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Just get me out of this mess. You know what? Once he gets you out of it, you go right back to what you did before. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 talks about vows. It says, Keep thy foot from when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give to the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not uh, in the evil day. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God in heaven and upon the earth. Wherefore, let thy word be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow... Unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Now, that's just as simple as it is. And I, and I love it because he says in verse 1, he says, he, says, he says, it's better for you to hear. 
it's better for you to hear what I'm saying today about principles and being put into your life than you going out and making some sacrifice of a fool by telling your God you're going to do something when you know you're not. That's what you got. And this goes back to you understanding your way. You know how I can understand my way? I'm going to tell you something. This is good. You're going to want to write this down. I don't have this in. I just thought of this. You know how you can know you can understand your way with God? You know what the key is of you really understanding your way is with God? I'm going to tell you what it is. Understand your way without God. Understand the way you are right now. What's got you in the mess you're in. That is the greatest advice I can give you. Now the greatest example of this in the Bible will be found in the book of Judges. Now I want you to turn over to Judges chapter 11 here. I think this is one of the greatest examples anywhere in the Bible. And I, again, this, goes, this is my case in point. This example story here goes back to Proverbs. This man represents <coughs> Christianity, God's people today, to a T. Of course, you know it's the book of Judges, so we know that we're under the guideline here that <coughs> there's no king in Israel and everybody's doing what they want to do. Just like today. No authority. And the story is a story of a man named Jephthah. And I want to begin picking it up in verse 29 of, of Judges chapter 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, then passed over Mizbeth of Gilead, and from Mizbeth of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now that sounds spiritual. That man is a Christian. That man is spiritual. Wow. That sounds great. Verse 32. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from Aor, even until Mizneth, even twenty cities, and under the plain of the vineyard with a great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mesbeth unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. You ever notice how that when somebody does something really stupid, and the other person's the victim here, like the daughter? It wasn't the daughter that troubled him. See how we like to blame other people for our problems? He shot off his mouth. He said something he shouldn't have said. He made a rash vow. Now he comes home. His daughter comes down. He looks at her and he says, It's your fault you came out first. Why didn't you send a dog out? Why didn't you send my wife out? Why didn't you send your mother-in-law out? Why? It's your fault for coming out first. That's what we do. 
That's what we do. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord. I love this girl. This girl knows her father's got a big mouth. She quotes it back to him verbatim. Okay, Dad, because you got a big mouth and you opened it unto the Lord, do to me according to that which proceeded out of thy mouth, for as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go up and down the mountains and bewail my virginity uh, and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass that at the end of two months that she returned according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man. And it was the custom in Israel. So that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughters of Jephthah, uh, the Gileadite, four days a year. Now, that's an incredible story. Now, I must tell you here that the liberals who don't believe the Bible anyhow, they can't, they just have a time with this. They cannot believe that a man would take his own daughter and offer her up as a sacrifice that because he said he would do that with God. And I'll tell you what else they can't. They can't believe that God would allow him to do it. So in, in, in many of the commentaries that you're going to find, they'll say that it really wasn't his daughter, it was a, it was a chicken or it was a duck. And guys get up and teach that. Bible seminaries, they teach that. Preachers take it to the pulpit. If Gene Geisinger was in that church, he would raise his hand and he'd say, you say it's a chicken and a duck. The Bible says it's a girl. I just got one question. How in the world does a chicken or a duck bewail its virginity for two months? You see, when you don't really believe the Bible and you make it up because you can't find out why it is the way it is, there's a reason why God let this happen. You see, we like to think that we can make some really stupid decisions and God will just cover our backs all the time on the thing. Now, maybe he will because God blesses drunkards and fools and most of you don't drink. That makes you a fool, by the way, in case you ain't figured that out. But I want to tell you, this is the Christian reasoning today. I'll go get my life in a mess. I'll do whatever I want to do. And then, you know, I'll sow my wild oats and I'll pray for crop failure. Didn't work. Now, I've got to tell you something else here. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Having the Spirit of God in your life by itself will not keep you from making bad choices. I want you to see that. He had the Spirit of the Lord. Having the Spirit of God, you being saved and have God's Spirit inside you this morning... It's not in itself going to keep you from making bad choices unless you take that spirit, get those principles, put them in your life, do something with it. That's how it works. That's how it works. It's just that simple. And in verse 30, Jephthah vows. Now, I'm going to tell you, he didn't need to make a vow. This is what I'm talking about. This is why this is the guy like Jephthah is so clearly a type of so many people today. Jephthah did not need to make a vow to God for the victory over the children of Ammon. You know why? God had given them a hundred principles throughout the Bible that if Israel did what was right, no enemy would ever stand before them. Where do you get this vow stuff? Sounds spiritual. Sounds Christian. Just isn't biblical. 
<laughs> in scriptural. He didn't need to make a vow to God. He had a had a hundred promises, a hundred principles in the Old Testament that God, if Israel did what was right, but this is judges, you see. This is where a time where there's no king, there's no authority, and every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. It's a picture of the day and age we live in. Now I'm going to show you something else. And you better get this one down. He makes a stupid vow. And his kids pay the price for it. Jephthah lives. The daughter dies. It's the stupid things that we do in life that will kill our kids spiritually. Children will always pay the price for our no king in Israel and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. An unprincipled life will lead to unprincipled children. Verse 35, I've opened my mouth. Probably not the first time. And as I said, blaming his daughter. You've troubled me, daughter. What did I do, daddy? Did I steal something? Did I do? No, you just came out of the house first. Completely innocent. And it shows you that when we make bad choices, when we do things that are outside the principle line of the Word of God, you may pay a little price for it, but his kid paid the ultimate price for it. And there's many a child out there in the world today simply because of parents like this who didn't follow the principles, who kept getting off the main road, thought it was more fun in this town here. Now, what should he have done? Let's just talk about cause and effect. What should he have done? Now, let me tell you what this problem is here. Because I personally think he knew what he should do based on, he seems to be pretty knowledgeable in the Bible. I mean, he's a deacon. <laughs> he's a Sunday school teacher, for goodness sakes. He's got the Spirit of the Lord. I'll tell you what his problem is. It's pride. He shot off his mouth. He's prideful. He probably knew what he needed to do. But he's got too much pride to back up. I've seen, I've seen dads lose their kids that way. I don't think too many moms lose their kids that way, but they're out there. I've seen them come to the place where their pride gets so overwhelming that they've got to be right so much. And the kids will always pay the price. Let me tell you something. Let me give you a good piece of advice. Don't ever get so, away from, so far away from God. Don't ever get, I'm going to say it again, because I want you to hear it. It's on tape. Buy the tape for $100. You can have it all you want. Get his app over there. We'll bill you every month. Don't ever get so, away, so far away from God that God can't instantly bring tears to your eyes by reaching down and squeezing your heart. It's okay if you get off the main drag. We all do. 
You know the great thing about going from here to St. Louis and getting off at Sweet Springs on this exit? Right there when you stop, you got to go left or right. If you go straight, you get back on the road again. Where there's an exit off, there's always an exit on. That's it. Don't get so far away from God. We all screw up. We all make stupid mistakes. We all do stay stupid things. We all do stupid things. Don't ever get so far from God that in your moment when you have that, that failure in your life, and we all have them, don't stay off the main road. And the only way you're going to get back is for it to be close enough with God that God can reach down and touch your heart and squeeze that thing and bring the tears to your eyes to get you back on the road. I'm telling you. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. What should he have done? Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Or if a soul swear, pronouncing with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatsoever it be that that man shall pronounce with an oath, and it be hid from him when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty in one of these. And it shall be that when he be guilty of one of these things, that he shall confess that which he has sinned in that thing. Just got it right, that's all. He should have come home, saw his daughter come out and said, you know what? Boy, that was a great lesson, God. Because I shot my mouth off and I said I was going to do the first thing that came out and my daughter came out. Boy, did you ever teach me a lesson. I should never have vowed that. I'm sorry, Lord. I'll do better next time. Uh-uh, not him. Not him. And not most of God's people. Uh-uh. Now, hold the ground, boy. Confess it. Take responsibility for it and move on. Amen. You know, do you ever see down at the plaza? There's a lot of things to look at down at the plaza. Do you ever notice that? If you're a people watcher, that's the place to go. I like to just listen to the foreign dialects of the different people. People from all over the world come to the plaza. And you can tell, you can, I can tell by the way they dress. I can tell that I know European shoes. I know you've been, I've been around. I, I know, I can tell. And then when you look up, yeah, that's a European. Somebody says, that's, that's not a Chinese. No, that's a Korean. How do you know the difference? You've got to know the difference. Well, there's a Korean. No, that's Japanese. How do you know the difference? You've got to be able to tell the difference. They, don't, they look the same to you. But if you know what one looks like, they don't look the same to you. I mean, you can tell them. I can tell by their shoes. Those are Italian shoes. I know you can buy Italian shoes, but they're on Italian feet. That's the difference. Sir, can you take your shoes off? I want to see what country you're from. Do you ever go down there? They have the carriage rides. You know the carriage rides? Do you ever notice the horses? They have to ride through the streets with all the people. They take their dogs down there now. you got cars, loud motorcycles. I mean, you go down the plaza and literally walk down the sidewalk and just see everything. You see things you shouldn't want to look at. You see things that you should look at. You look in the windows and you see all these things. Somebody walks by, oh, we're looking at that. And you, you watch all these things. When they hook the horses up and they take them out, do you ever notice those horses got blinders on? Those horses got blinders on so they don't get distracted what's over on the side. Those blinders keep that horse just looking straight. And for you and for me, the blinders for us are the principles of the Word of God that keeps us looking straight. You've got to put them on. You've got to have them. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. All right, look at verse 26. Let's see this. A wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. 
Now, we saw this in, in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8. A king that sitteth on the throne scattereth away all evil with his eyes. We saw that. And I told you that the scattering here in the context is the second coming of Christ. Christ on the throne, the second coming, scattering all evil with his eyes of the burning fire. Uh, we talked about that. And of course, there, there's levels of learning the Bible. And I try to take you as you grow to different levels. I really do. And you'll come to a point in your Bible where you'll learn some things like I'm going to show you right now. And it's a thing where, you know, you just want to mark these down. And, and you know, you want, to, you, want to always, you want to always look at certain words in the Bible. They don't always, many of them, every time you find it will mean something. Sometimes 50% of the time, you just, it, it's immaterial. You just always want to look at it. But you take the word wheel. Now, I know that a wheel in the Bible, you find Pharaoh's chariot wheels falling off. You find, you know, you find literal wheels in the Bible. But wheels in the Bible in certain places are going to always represent the second coming of Christ. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you'll find in the Bible where at the second coming of Christ, like in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, it talks about a wheel within a wheel. You know, way back in my day, back in the 70s, a guy by the name of Von Daniken wrote a book on the chariots of the gods. And he wanted to come to the point that uh, ancient aliens visited our planet eons ago, you know, and, and, uh, and, and all that stuff. And uh, he, uh, they all go the same way, you know. They, they go into the Bible when a, a phenomena in the sky takes place. And they always equate that as that's proof that there were flying saucers or there were people visiting the planet. And, of course, what they say is, is these people back there that saw these things didn't know what they were looking at, so they just recorded it the best they could. And, and Von Donegan, like all the other idiots out there, he forgot the fact that these people didn't write the Bible. God wrote the Bible, and God put that in there because it meant something. The fact that Von Daniken doesn't know the Bible doesn't mean that a caveman out there was saying, oh, look at that big fireball in the sky. That must be a UFO. No. God put it there for a reason. It had a purpose. And many of those things are prophecy in the future. Ezekiel chapter 1, they're in captivity. They're not about a river Sebar. And Daniel's captive. He's seeing these things. He's not seeing them visually. He's seeing them, God is showing him prophetically something that's going to happen to get them out of the next captivity that they're in under the Antichrist. Now look at this. Look, look, at, look at Ezekiel 1, um, verse 15. Now I beheld the living creatures. These are cherubim, by the way, without making it short for you. Behold one wheel upon the earth. Look at verse 16, the appearance of the wheels. You see that? Uh, look at end of 16. Uh, were wheels in the middle of a wheel. See that? Look at verse 19. And the living creatures went, the wheels went with them. And verse 20, uh, down at the end, living creatures was in the wheels. Verse 21, middle of the verse, the wheels were lifted up. The end of the verse, the creature was in the wheels. See how that thing is? Quote Ezekiel chapter 10, you see it again. This was Von Daniken's other favorite chapter. In chapter 10, verses 1, he says, uh, I, I, and behold, Then I looked and behold, uh, uh, behold in the firmament, Above the uh, head of the chief cherubims were appeared over them were a sapphire stone, appearance of likeness of a throne. You see that? Wherever you find these wheels, there's always a throne except it's God's throne. Look at verse 2. Between the wheels. In chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The four had the likeness of the wheels in the midst of a wheel. 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 says, Behold, all, till all, I beheld till all the thrones cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and his hair of his head were like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels, see that thing? Of the burning fire. That's the second coming of Christ. You go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. You go to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 24, Isaiah 63, Micaiah 4, 1, Habakkuk 3, 12. Uh, you're going to find, you're going to find that you, this, this is always associated with the second coming. And this wheel is like a threshing machine. And it's a picture, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, of this threshing machine coming in at the second coming, which he is going to thresh the nation. Remember over there in Matthew? Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. It talks about whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the second coming of Christ. Here's what it's like. He likens the chaff and the wheat to people. The wheat are the good people. The chaff is the bad people. This wheel within a wheel that comes in at the second coming of Christ is like a threshing instrument that comes down and threshes the wheat. It gathers the good wheat into his garner, and takes the bad wheat or the chaff into the fire. That's what it's a picture of. And that's a key thing in understanding the second coming of Christ. Two great verses on God's uh, threshing judgment uh, with a wheel within a wheel. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4, first it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore, thou art red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. I have trodden the wine fast alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain my raiment, uh, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of redeemed is come. That's Revelation 19.13. We're talking about Christ, clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That's the valley of Armageddon. He's coming down and thrashing these people. And the blood staining on his garments. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. I will be upholding thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confused. They shall be as nothing, and they shall strive with thee and shall perish. You see, that's where Jephthah should have went. See, that's a promise to Israel. That's where he should have went. He didn't need to give a vow. He should have just read that. Saddle up, lock and load, we're going to nail them. That's all we needed. Thou shalt seek them and shall not find them, even them that contended with thee, they shall war against thee, shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and uh, ye men of Israel. Uh, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and Redeemer of the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new, here it comes. Behold, I will make thee a new, sharp, threshing instrument, having teeth, and thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small. Thou shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them and will carry, uh, shall carry them away. And the whirlwind, second coming, shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and thou shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. Those wheels within a wheel, second coming. So when you get back there in Proverbs in this last verse and it's talking about a wise king scatter wicked and bringeth the wheel over them, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Principles. I want to give you one last thing here on principles. If you were a lawyer, 
and you had a case that you were preparing for, you would have access to, if you don't have it yourself, a law library. And you would go into that law library and you would look up the cases that are similar to use for what they call case law. So-and-so versus so-and-so. And you would find, based on the history of, 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 of law, how these cases went based on the precedent that is now set for case law uh, in how you're going to go to court. And so it's a thing where, you know, uh, you, you get your case law ready, you get all your stuff in together, you go to court, you present it to the judge, the judge looks at the history of the precedent that has been set, and most of the time he makes his ruling based on that. Well, you're not a lawyer, but you are a Christian. And where a lawyer needs to have a law library, you need to have a principal library. You need to have, as a lawyer has rows and rows of books that has case law in it, you ought to have rows and rows of, of books in your life, in your heart, in your mind, that has the principles in it. And when you're faced with a situation in life, you'll only win your case if you go get the case law and present it the way it needs to be presented. You try to make it up on your own, you're going to lose your case. You try to make it up on your own, you're going to get off the highway. You follow the principles that God has given you. You follow the precedent that has been set by the case law of the Word of God, of the principles of the Word of God, in the cause and the effect of what men do and what happens when they do it. That's what you follow. You build it that way. You have character after character, story after story, found in the Word of God, where God shows you, this guy did this, this is what happened. He did it wrong, this was the result. He did it right, this was the result. The book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man. One does it right, one does it wrong. It's case law for your in life and my life. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. It's our case law. We establish ourselves by establishing uh, them through the principles. Case law. How the God of the universe, our highest authority, has ruled on the issues of life. God never violates his own principles. We violate them. You can have all the case law books. You'd be the greatest lawyer in the world. You have all the case law books. You can spend a million dollars buying every book that you have. If he doesn't use them, he'll never win his case. And you can have all the principles of the Word of God in your Bible, on your refrigerator, on your 3 by 5 cards. They only work that if in the hour you need, when you're passing that exit and you see that big old sign and it entices you, that you just keep the blinders on and stay with the principles. That's the key. We'll hold up there. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for today. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for its clear approach to, to life and how it's not complicated, it's not hard. It's just simply the hardest thing is not getting what the Bible says. The hardest thing is doing what it says. And we thank you for these good people. I thank you for their love for you, for their courage, for their work in the ministry here. And I just pray with all that we got coming up for camp that, uh, that you'll bless us. I pray for, I pray for this Jennifer, Lord, that you'll uh, let it be special on our hearts. Uh, Lord, that we'll be able to minister to her through this time and get that daughter. Lord, I know how this is going to go. I see it already. And um, I just want you to know uh, that, uh, Lord, we'll do our best for you. I thank you for these good folks. I love them so much. They all mean the world to me. And I know we all get off the road sometimes, Lord, but help me always to help them get back on. And if I get off, help them to help me get back on. It's that dual accountability to each other. 
And Lord, I, I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen.